Welcome to the Dunwoody Community Church Podcast. We are so glad you have chosen to listen in to one of our Sunday services, and we hope that you will be blessed by today's message. For more information about Dunwoody Community Church, please visit us at dunwoodychurch.org. That's dunwoodychurch.org. Welcome to the fourth Sunday in Lent as we continue our series on the bad boys of the Bible, learning from bad examples. Um, And today, we're going to do someone that really I would be hard-pressed to call a bad boy of the Bible. I bet if you looked at any lists of bad boys, you wouldn't find him there. But he does have a terrible example in his life that we can learn from. So we're going to look today at the life of King Asa. His story is found in 2 Chronicles chapter 14 through 16. So turn there with me in your Bible, 2 Chronicles chapter 14 through 16. Now normally, I would read all of his story to you, then go back and we'd walk through it together and I'd sort of pick some parts out and show you some things and make some connections. This is long and where we're really gonna focus is chapter 16 because that unfortunately, it's the end of his life and, and that's where he really goes off the rails. That's where we really have something to learn from a bad example. So rather than read 14 and 15 to you and then go back and talk about it, I'm just gonna walk us through chapters 14 and 15, then we'll read chapter 16 and talk about that in depth. So, 2 Chronicles chapter 14, just follow along with me. Notice in verse 1, we meet King Asa. It says, Asa, the son of Abijab, he uh, um, secedes his father as king, and in his days, the country was at peace. And then we're told in verse 2 that he was good, and he did what was, in the eyes of the Lord, what was right. And so we find out that Asa's a good king and he starts his reign in peace. And that's really good. The last couple kings, his dad and his granddad, they didn't have peace. And we're told throughout the story that God has granted him peace. And if you keep reading through theirs, verses three, four, five, six, seven, he really uses the time well. He gets rid of some stuff that's bad in the country. He does some building projects. He fortifies some things. He gets his army ready. Like he does exactly what you'd want a king to do. If you were, remember last week, I told you that really one of the main reasons the people, and, and again, this is you know 150 years before Asa. We're around 900 BC. About 150 years before this, the people wanted a king because they wanted someone to lead their armies. And so Asa's getting everything together and that's really good because if you go down to verse nine, Asa faces the first real crisis of his reign 10 years in. Now, we don't know when he became king. He's probably mid to late 20s sometime. So here he is mid to late 30s, and he is attacked in verse nine by Zerah, the Cushite. Now, Cush is modern day Ethiopia, but at this point in history, it's part of Egypt. So the country of Egypt in Bible times encompassed modern-day Egypt, modern-day Ethiopia, part of modern-day Libya. It was much larger than it is today as a country. And Cush is the upper Nile region, the part of the country that we call modern-day Ethiopia. So he's being invaded by what we would call the Egyptians. And do you notice what it says in verse 9? He has thousands upon thousands and 300 chariots. Thousands upon thousands, that means a million in Hebrew. It's a thousand thousands. He brings a million men and he brings hundreds of chariots. Now, that's really bad. Do you notice what Asa has in verse 8? He has men with shields, spears, and bows. And this Egyptian, he has chariots. Chariots, they're like the tanks of the ancient world. You know, what happens if you put a few hundred tanks and thousands and thousands of men who have nothing but rifles and the occasional grenade? The tanks win every time. Asa's in trouble. 
He's in real trouble. He is outclassed militarily. It says he's got an army of about half a million men. So this guy has twice as many people as he has, and he has chariots. And it doesn't even say Asa has any cavalry. He's just got infantry. He is in trouble, but he responds so well. Look at what Asa does. In verse 10, it says, Asa went out to meet him, and they took up battle positions. So Asa leads his army out. He does exactly what a king ought to do. He's not back in Jerusalem hiding. He's not trying to get away. He's not crying out, why me? He leads his army out to fight this guy, even though this probably isn't going to go well. And then in verse 11, we're told, Asa called to the Lord his God. So Asa does humanly what he ought to do, and he does spiritually what he ought to do. He calls out to God. And notice what it says in verse 11 in his prayer. He says, Lord our God, we rely on on you. Now remember that word rely because it's going to be important in our story. Asa has a great response. He does humanly everything he should do and he calls out to God. He says, God, we rely on you. You know, he's made all his preparations, but he's not relying on his preparations and he's leading his, you know, 500,000 guys out into battle, but he's not relying on all those guys. He says, Lord, we rely on you. And what happens? Verse 12, the Lord struck down the Cushites and they fled. That such a great number of Cushites fell that they could not recover. Asa wins an incredible victory. I mean, he's facing these terrible odds, and yet he has this completely crushing victory. It is so crushing that Egypt will not attack Israel again for over 200 years. That's how badly he beats them because he did everything he could humanly, and then he relied on the Lord. And It's just this incredible victory. And move into chapter 15. Notice what happens at the beginning of chapter 15 of verses one and two. A prophet comes out to meet Asa. So he's won this incredible battle. And now this prophet comes to meet him. And the prophet has sort of your normal prophety kind of things to say about, you know, if you follow God, it'll go well. If you abandon God, it's not gonna go well with you. But the prophet ends this way in verse seven. As for you, be strong. Do not give up for your work will be rewarded. You know, the prophet tells Asa effectively, good job, God's really proud of you. Keep it up. Like like God's watching, he'll reward you. Keep working hard. Keep doing humanly everything you can do because God is behind it. God is behind you. He is at work. And it says in verse eight, when Asa heard these words in the prophecy, he took courage. So Asa's just won this incredible military victory, but now he goes beyond that and he leads the whole nation into a national revival. As you read down through the rest of verse 15, everything that happens is so good. The whole country is turning to God. They're getting rid of their idols. They're renewing the covenant. Everything happening is good. And so in verse 17, the end of verse 17, we're told this. Asa's heart was fully committed to the Lord his God, He brought into the temple of God the silver and gold and the articles that he and his father had dedicated. There was no more war until the 35th year of Asa's reign. These things where it's telling us, both at the beginning, that Asa did what was right in the eyes of the Lord and he had peace, and now here, Asa's heart was fully committed to the Lord and he had peace. This language harkens back to the days of King David. 
So again, Asa is around 900 BC. David comes right after Saul. He's in the early 1000s. So, you know, he's 100 to 150 years before Asa comes along. And David is the golden age of the nation of Israel at this point. When David becomes king, you remember we talked about King Saul last week. David becomes the next king. God does, in fact, reject Saul. His family doesn't keep the kingship. When he dies, God takes a different man, another family, David, and makes him king. When David becomes king, on a map, Israel will be about this big, and it is surrounded on all sides, except for the Mediterranean Ocean, by the sea, uh, excuse me, by their enemies. When David dies 40 years later after becoming king, Israel is about this big, and they are surrounded on every side by tribute nations. David has quadrupled the size of the country. It's just territory he controls. And he is surrounded by other nations that acknowledge him as the dominant power. When David dies, Israel is the dominant power in the Middle East. Modern day, Israel, Jordan, Iraq, Iran, Turkey, Lebanon, Syria, the Sinai Peninsula, parts of Saudi Arabia, the Emirates, all those places, they all bring tribute to David. He is by far the most powerful king in that region. You have to go all the way over to the Euphrates River, like modern-day modern Baghdad and those kind of places, before you find anyone who is not sending tribute to King David. Those are the glory days of the nation, like about a thousand years, or, uh, excuse me, a hundred years or so before Asa. And the language is hearkening back to that. And of course, the question is, is it going to keep going? Is it going to continue? Like, are we really going to come back in to those glory days of King David, whose heart was committed to God? You know, when it says that about Asa, it hasn't said that about anyone. David's son Solomon, his heart begins committed to God, but it doesn't end committed to God. He turns away. His son Rehoboam isn't committed to God. Rehoboam's son Abijah isn't committed to God. Then finally we get to Asa. Asa's four generations after David. He's David's great, great grandson. Now finally we have another king of Israel who it looks like is hearkening back to those great wonderful days when David was fully committed to the Lord and so many good things were happening. Is it going to continue? And the answer, unfortunately, in chapter 16 is no. No, it's not because of what happens to Asa. So before we read chapter 16, there's one little bit of terminology you need to understand. The kingdom that Asa rules, the kingdom of Israel, it's not the same Israel that David ruled. David and his son Solomon ruled what we call the united monarchy. We call it the united monarchy because after Solomon, the country is divided. There is a civil war under Solomon's son. His name was Rehoboam. And about three quarters of the, the nation, the, the northern three quarters, they don't want to be ruled by Rehoboam. And so they leave and, and there's some fighting, but they win and, and they go. They set up their own king. They set up their own temples. I told you about the, the Levites who are in charge of the worship. They set up their own priests. Like they reject David's kingdom. So now we've got two kingdoms of Israel. There's a northern kingdom of Israel and a southern kingdom of Israel. And so to avoid confusion on that, when the writer of Chronicles writes these stories, when he says Israel, what he means is that northern kingdom, the people who left. Because again, it's about three quarters of David's kingdom. They are Israel when he writes in Chronicles. And he calls the southern kingdom, the kingdom where Asa is actually the king, David's great-great-grandson, he calls that Judah. So remember that as we're reading, and that's true in 14 and 15 as well. Israel is the northern kingdom, the ones who broke off. They don't follow David's line anymore. They don't even follow God anymore. 
And the southern kingdom, the the kingdom that, that did continue, it's called Judah. So read now with me chapter 16 of 2 Chronicles. In the 36th year of Asa's reign, Basha, king of Israel, so that's the northern kingdom, the guys who split off about 60 years before this time, Basha, king of Israel, went up against Judah and fortified Ramah to prevent anyone from leaving or entering the territory of Asa, king of Judah. Asa then took the silver and gold out of the treasuries of the Lord's temple and of his own palace, and he sent it to Ben-Hadad, king of Aram, who was ruling in Damascus. Let there be a treaty between you and me, he said, as there was between my father and your father. See, I'm sending you silver and gold. Now break your treaty with Basha, king of Israel, so he will withdraw from me. Ben-Hadad agreed with King Asa and sent the commanders of his forces against the town of Israel. They conquered Eon, Don, Abelmaim, and all the store cities of Naphtali. When Basha heard this, he stopped building Ramah and abandoned his work. Then King Asa brought all the men of Judah, and they carried away from Ramah the stones and timber Basha had been using, and with them he built up Geba and Mizpah. At that time, Hanani the seer came to Asa, king of Judah, and said to him, "'Because you relied on the king of Aram and not on the Lord your God,' The army of the king of Aram has escaped from your hand. Were not the Cushites and the Libyans a mighty army and with great numbers of chariots and horsemen? Yet when you relied on the Lord, he delivered them into your hands. For the eyes of the Lord range throughout the earth to strengthen those whose hearts are fully committed to him. You have done a foolish thing, and from now on, you will be at war. Asa was angry with the seer because of this. He was so enraged that he put him in prison. At the same time, Asa brutally oppressed some of the people. The events of Asa's reign from beginning to end are written in the book of the kings of Judah and Israel. In the 39th year of his reign, Asa was afflicted with a disease in his feet. Though his disease was severe, even in his illness, he did not seek help from the Lord, but only from physicians. Then in the 41st year of his reign, Asa died and rested with his ancestors. They buried him in the tomb that he had cut out for himself in the city of David. They laid him on a bier covered with spices and various blended perfumes, and they made a huge fire in his honor. So, Quick geography lesson. Remember, Judah in the south where Asa rules, Israel in the north. The border between those two is about 10 miles north of Jerusalem, the capital of Judah, the capital of the southern kingdom. So not that far. When it says Basha came down to Ramah, Ramah is right on the border. It is just on the northern side of the border. And he brings timbers and stones and people, and he is gonna build up the border. At this point, there really is no border. There's no walls. There's nothing there. People just pass back and forth. Basha's going to stop that. He's building along the made trade route. You see, this is a problem for Asa because they've got a desert on one side of them, the sea on the other. Trade can either come from the south through Egypt, which again has pulled in the stocks and nobody's coming up and down through there, or it can come in the north down through Israel. Basha's going to cut that trade route off. Nobody's going to get into Judah without his say-so. In other words, he can starve them. He can keep food from moving back and forth. He can keep weapons. He can keep animals. He is basically going to put Judah under siege. And that is a problem. And Asa comes up with what I think is a brilliant plan. So Asa's here in the south. Basha's here in the north. To the north of Israel, the kingdom Basha rules, is the kingdom of Aram. Asa sends messengers to the king of Aram and says, hey, I know you have a treaty with Israel. Because see, Basha has had to take all his troops to the south to protect them while they build up the fortifications. 
He hasn't left any troops in the north. He's made a treaty with the country to the north of him that there won't be any fighting. So he doesn't need troops up there. Asa says, I know you have a treaty with Basha. How about you break that and make a treaty with me instead? Here's a ton of cash. And Ben-Hadad, the king of Aram, says, oh, absolutely. And his soldiers stream across the border. All these places that it talks about, Eon, Dan, Abel, Maim, Naphtali, they're all in the northern part of Israel. So when Basha down here on the southern border hears about that, of course, he has to take his army north to meet that conflict. So now his southern border is undefended. And Asa comes along, gathers up all the material that Basha had paid for and brought down there, and he builds up his side of the border. These cities it talks about, Geba and Mizpah, they're just on the southern side of the border. So now Asa controls the border, not Basha. And there's no way Basha's gonna be able to come down and build fortifications right there under him. So Asa has brilliantly solved the second major crisis of his reign. The first major crisis, the Egyptians, he beat them back and off they went. The second major crisis, he doesn't even need to fight. He doesn't even fire a shot. He spends some money and now he controls the border. He never has to worry again that someone is going to block off the border and the trade routes through his, company, his country. This sounds wonderful. And I want you to notice the parallels in the two stories. The story of the initial crisis back in year 10 of his reign, and now the story here in year 35 of his reign. If you go back to 14 chapter 1, we're told that he had this 10-year peace. And then at the beginning of this story in 15.9, we're told that he had a 25-year peace. Then in chapter 14, verse 9, you have the crisis, the Egyptians attack. And in 16, verse 1, you have the second crisis. Israel comes and tries to take over the border. In 14.10, Asa acts and he leads his army out against the Egyptians. And in 16.2, Asa acts by sending envoys up to the king of Aram to get him to attack. So he gets somebody else to attack instead of himself. In 14 verse 12, it succeeds. And the Cushites, the Egyptians, they're driven off. And in 16.5, it succeeds. And the Israelites are driven off. They leave. They have to go up and fight the king of Aram. Then back in 14, in verses 13 and 14, Asa and the troops, they carry back all the plunder and the spoil. And in, four, in 16 verse 6, they carry all the spoil and the plunder back again. Only this time they don't take it back to Jerusalem. They use it to secure their side of the border. Then in 15.2, a prophet comes to congratulate Asa. And in 16.7, a prophet comes to see Asa. What do you think Asa is thinking? Like you see how similar these two crises are when you sort of look down on them, right up to a prophet coming to you. What do you think that Asa expects to hear? Because last time he had almost this exact same situation. What the prophet said to him was, great job. God is with you. God is blessing you. Keep it up. Only that's not what the prophet says to him this time, is it? Why not? Well, if you're paying attention, you know there's one detail that's different between these two stories. Back in 14, verse 10, do you remember what happens? Asa went out to meet him, and I said, see, in 14.10, Asa acts. Then we didn't talk about 14.11. Then Asa called to the Lord his God. Lord, our God, we rely on you, Asa said. That didn't happen. 
in the second story. And so the prophet comes to Asa. And his message is not, in the end, great job. His message is, you fool. You relied, there's that word again, you relied on the king of Arab instead of relying on God. And so you're a fool. And you've brought war to your country. Like these stories, they just track through. There's just this one detail missing in the second story. And that turns out to be all the difference. And now the stories diverge again. Because in the previous story, Asa heard the prophet. The prophet said, take courage. The very next verse says, Asa heard the prophet and he took courage. And he leads this national revival. How does Asa respond to this prophet? Verse 10 of chapter 16, Asa was angry. He put the prophet in prison. He was so enraged. He brutally oppressed some of the people. Asa responds, not with taking courage and doing what God has said, not with leading another revival, but with rage. He's enraged and he lashes out. He lashes out at the messenger, the prophet who sent this to him. And then he just lashes out his own people. He doesn't even just oppress them. He brutally, brutally oppresses them. The text says, why? Why does Asa respond like this, do you think? Because the text doesn't tell us. It doesn't say what's going on in Asa's mind. It just says it happened, but I don't think you need a PhD in theology or psychology to know what's going on. Asa expected to be praised. He expected to be commended. I bet he's, he's seeing both these crises working out in exactly the same way, only this time it's been even better because it didn't, didn't even have to fight. No one died. No one was hurt. Everything happened exactly the same way. I bet he is expecting that prophet to tell him what a great job he did. And when the prophet rebukes him, when the prophet calls him a fool, he's brought war to his people. He thinks he's brought peace. He thinks what he's done, securing the border, that's going to be peace for his nation. And the prophet tells him, you're an idiot. You didn't rely on God. And so you will have war. You know, if we expect to be rebuked, that's bad, isn't it? But if you expect to be praised and you get rebuked instead, isn't it so, so much worse? And in his anger, at this rebuke, maybe in his embarrassment, who knows what, he lashes out, he causes harm. And look at what the writer of Chronicles tells us happens. Three years later, Asa is still so furious at God that he won't even talk to him. Even when he's desperately ill and needs God's help, he still is so mad at the Lord that he won't even ask for help. Three years later, That anger in him is still burning. And two years after that, he's dead. That's how Asa ends. That's why Asa is this terrible example at the end of his life. You know, I told you that the story of Asa worries me. It scares me so much more than the other three we've done so far. Because the last three guys, Cain, Korah, and Saul, they're not believers. They don't follow God. There's nothing in their story that would make you think that they believed God or they trusted God or they cared one whit about God. But Asa, we are told that Asa is a believer. 
Like we are told he does what is right. The Lord is with him. We are told his heart is committed to the Lord. That's the final verdict on the good parts. The first 35 years of Asa's reign, Asa's heart was fully committed to the Lord all his life. Did you catch that? He is a believer, absolutely. But we all know being a believer doesn't stop you from being a fool. It doesn't stop you from relying on yourself. It doesn't stop you from making terrible, terrible mistakes. Asa, at the beginning of his reign, 10 years in, Asa faces a crisis. He does everything he humanly can, and he relies on God, and he succeeds brilliantly. Later, at the end of his reign, Asa faces another similar crisis. He does everything he can humanly, but he does not rely on God. And he succeeds brilliantly, humanly speaking. If the prophet didn't show up and tell us what went wrong, I don't think there's any way we'd know. He succeeds, but he doesn't trust God. He doesn't rely on God. Humanly, it looks good, but spiritually, it's a total failure. Spiritually, he doesn't rely on God. He doesn't submit these plans to God. Look at what the prophet says to him back in verse seven. Because you relied on the king of Aram and not on the Lord your God, the army of the king of Aram has escaped you. Not the army of the king of Israel. Asa, Asa's just concerned with Israel blocking his border. God is concerned with so much more. Remember we said this language harkens back to the glory days of David when all the nations around them were tribute nations and they were at peace. Is that what God was gonna start to do again with Asa? Like he was going to conquer Aram. He was gonna turn Aram into a tribute nation. He wasn't just gonna deal with Israel, one country to his north. He was gonna go even further. God had these grand plans. He's allowing the king of Israel to come down and do this because it's part of his plan to do good for Judah. It's part of his plan to enlarge Asa and his sphere. Only Asa doesn't ask him about it, doesn't talk to him, doesn't rely on him, just figures out this great plan and does it. And so this chance, this incredible chance for peace is lost. And instead the prophet says, oh, you've just brought war on your nation. Asa scares me because as a Christian, it is so easy that we be Asa, that we rely on ourselves. And I wonder how much good have I missed because I relied on myself? Because you know, brothers and sisters, how easy that is. How easy it is for us to do everything humanly possible, which we're absolutely supposed to do, but just forget to talk to God about it. Just forget to rely on God. Just to forget that one verse. These two stories look exactly the same, except for one single verse. Chapter 14, verse 11. Then Asa called on the Lord his God. Oh, Lord our God, he said, we rely on you. That's the only difference, but it is the difference. It makes the difference between a a true success and an apparent success. It makes a difference between securing a border and securing the entire territory, securing the countries all around you. And it is so, so easy to do. So brothers and sisters, let me ask you, how are you doing? How are you doing at relying on the Lord and not relying on yourself? Because again, I'm not saying your actions would change. 
I'm not saying you would do anything different. I don't know if Asa would have done any different. Maybe that was exactly God's plan. But God had more that would have happened if Asa had relied on him. How are you doing? How are you doing at submitting your plans to God? How are you doing at relying on God? Because again, it's not about your actions. It's about something in your heart, something in your mind and your attitude that says that, that, yes, I know I can do these things, but I know the truth of what Jesus says. I can't accomplish anything without him. Jesus says, apart from me, you can do nothing. If we know that truth, then we're always relying on him. But I know and I bet you know how easy it is to stop doing that. How are you doing at relying on the Lord? Are there places in your life where you're not? Are there places in your life where maybe you're missing out on the blessings that God would bring, the the great successes that God wants to give you, but you don't consult him and you don't rely on him? You you hear us talk all the time about how every morning, whatever staff is here, we get together, we read the Bible, and we pray. And when we end that time, we say the same thing. And I mean, I've been saying the same thing. This Easter, it will be nine years since I took over, first as the interim pastor here, and then later that summer as the full-time pastor. That entire time, we have met every morning to read scripture and pray, and we have ended the same way. We say to God, it's your church, not ours. We have our plans, but we submit them to you. You are our God. What you want is what we want. You are not here to serve our plans. We are here to serve yours. And we do that every day because I have to remind myself of that every single day, or I know I will become Asa. I know how easy it is for me to think I've got it figured out. I know how to do this. I have a friend in the church who says his besetting sin is something happens and the Lord comes in and helps him. And then he says to the Lord, okay, God, I can take it from here. He does what Asa does. He relies on himself. He relies on something else. How are you doing at relying on the Lord in everything in your life, submitting everything to him, adding that one verse to everything you do, calling out to the Lord, Lord, we rely on you because that one verse makes all the difference in these stories. And let me ask you another question that this, this story brings up for me. Anybody out there living what Asa lived in those last few years of his life? Anybody ever been in this situation? Somebody said something to you that, ah, you didn't really like, you weren't expecting it, you got rebuked when you thought you should have praised, you you didn't respond well, you got angry, you lashed out, and now, three years later, you're still furious and not talking to them. Anybody in that position? Can I implore you to look at Asa's story and say, wow, he was a fool, I don't have to be a fool. What should Asa have done? repented, apologized, said to God, I'm sorry. What do you want me to do? There's always forgiveness with the Lord. His relationship with the Lord would have been restored. I don't know if the consequences would have been changed. Sometimes God's forgiveness also covers up the consequences. Sometimes it doesn't. That's up to him. But his relationship with God would have been restored. He wouldn't have spent the next five years of his life not talking to his God. His God that we're told, his heart was committed to. But he was so angry. He was so angry at what had happened that he wouldn't speak. Anybody in that position, either with God or with another human, can I implore you to quit? It's not worth it. Life's too short. If you need to go say you're sorry, go say you're sorry. If you need to repent, repent. You don't have to be a fool like Asa. You don't have to live out years of being angry. 
Imagine what could have happened if he'd been on a good relationship with God, if then his feet got diseased and he could have asked for God's help. One of his great, 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 great grandsons, Hezekiah, will be at the point of death. He'll cry out to God. God will heal him and give him 15 more years of life. Who knows what could have happened in Asa's story if he hadn't been so angry for so long and never been able to let go of it. If you're still angry at God or at someone for something that happened, can I implore you to let it go? to let it go, to go, to say you're sorry, to repent, to do, do what you need to do to restore that relationship. Because when Asa dies at the end of this story, he is met by Jesus with open arms. Jesus is not angry with him. Jesus knew he would do these things. Jesus died for all of this, all of Asa's sin. Their relationship was instantly restored in that moment. But I bet if we asked Asa about it, and if you're a Christian, you'll meet him someday, you can. I bet he would say the, the prophet was right. I was a fool. I was a fool for the next five years. If you're in this situation, it doesn't have to continue. You, you can change it. So I'm gonna pray for us. I'm gonna pray about both these things. That if there's places where we are not relying on the Lord, we're relying on ourselves, that he would tell us so we could do that. And if there are places where we're acting like Asa, we're still mad years later. We said some things we shouldn't have said. We lashed out and we shouldn't have. We just need to go apologize I'm going to pray God gives us the courage to do that. So pray with me. Jesus, thank you. Thank you that you love us. Thank you that you loved Asa. Thank you that Asa was yours. And that wasn't about anything Asa did. It didn't matter that Asa was angry with you for the last five years of his life because you were not angry with him. You had died to save him. You met him with open arms. Thank you. Thank you. This is not about us. It's about you. That's what we learn at Easter. It's not about us. It's not about us being good. It's not about us getting it right. Asa gets it right once in his life and gets it horribly wrong in another, but his heart was still yours, it says. Thank you. We are so grateful, Lord. I I pray for my brothers and sisters. I pray for all of us. You know, Jesus, you're human. You, You were tempted in all the ways we were. You know how easy it is to rely on ourselves. You know how easy it is to rely on our our minds or rely on our cleverness or rely on our planning or or whatever whatever it is that we rely on instead of you. You know how easy that is for us. Please, Lord, tell us when we're doing it. Don't leave us like Asa to to become a fool, to suffer the consequences. Please tell us when we are doing this so that we can turn. And Lord, I pray for my brothers and sisters, if anyone out there is being Asa, if they are still angry years later about something that happened, I pray that you would give them the courage to apologize where they need to apologize, to repent where they need to repent, to turn and go back to someone, just as Asa should have turned and gone back to you, had his relationship restored. He could have enjoyed the last years of his life. Who knows how long he might have lived before that. Lord, I pray that you would give us courage. If anyone needs to stop being Asa, and yet it seems so hard and so hopeless, I pray that you would give them the courage, just like you sent a prophet to the first time to Asa, telling him, don't be, be courageous, keep working, you'll be rewarded. I pray you would speak that to anyone who needs to hear it, not to be afraid, to, to be courageous, to keep working, to keep trying, you will reward them. Lord, we pray all this always in your name. Amen.